Hi, everyone. Welcome to STEM From's podcast, Where Does Your Journey Stem From? Hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today, we are joined by Rachel, who is currently studying at the University of Nevada at Reno. Let's welcome to the stage, Rachel. Hi. Hey, Rachel. Rachel Kozlowski is a PhD student at the University of Nevada at Reno's graduate program of hydraulic sciences. Prior to beginning her PhD, Rachel worked in the private and government sectors as a soil scientist and environmental analyst. Her research focuses on microplastics in urban runoff and microplastic movement in connected surface and groundwater systems. When she is not conducting lab analyses or doing field work, she is equally happy exploring wild places or curled up with her dogs and a great book. So that's a great explanation of you, Rachel. Um, welcome to the podcast. I hope that we can then start off with our, our first question that we always start off with guests. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and you as a person. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Um, about myself, um, I'm, I am just a very curious person. I'm one of those people that's just always getting myself into trouble with asking too many questions. Um, I love, um, I love exploring in almost any space, whether it's the books I'm reading or, um, the outside environment or just pushing myself to learn something new. I think that's really one of the things that's just pushed me for my whole life. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and, um, you know, you, I think your proclivities to nature are obvious, um, wild adventures are obvious, but, you know, is that, was that always the case when you were a kid or was that something that was ingrained with you as you became older? Yeah. Um, I, I definitely, I grew up as a farm kid in, uh, Northern California, Northeastern California. So grew up, um, you know, working on ranches and uh, tractors and spending a lot of time outside, uh, a lot of time managing soils and water. So it's not surprising that that's sort of where I ended up. Um, my my family was always really, um, really out in the world, just out, out in the woods, out hiking, out fishing, camping, just spending a lot of time out in nature. So it's definitely something that was ingrained in me, I think, from the time I was a little kid. Um, and it's free, you know, for uh, rural people growing up in the middle of the nowhere. It's uh, it's free entertainment. So um, so we spent a lot of time. We spent a lot of time out. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's one of the things that's probably definitely had a, a big influence on my career trajectory, just that love of nature and um, love of those environments you see out there and the desire to protect them and keep them uh, available for everyone to enjoy. No, absolutely. Um, I think that's obviously tantamount to hopefully many people, obviously in America and beyond. Um, so, you know, as my my intro, I think, lent itself to you've worked in public-private institutions. Um, what did you like? What was good, bad, maybe even the ugly 
from any of those yeah, experiences from a background stuff. prior to your PhD? Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. So I started, I finished, I, well, okay. Let me go all the way back to the beginning. Um, so when I first went to college, I was really interested in airplanes. And so I started in aviation design and aviation technology. And I, I was in that track for about three years before I realized it really wasn't what I wanted. Took some time off and worked in the woods, building trails in New Mexico and um, kind of had some time to think about what I wanted. And then I went back and finished my degree at University of Wyoming uh, studying soil science. Um, and then when I got out, I had a bunch of I had a bunch of uh, advisors and other students just really encouraging me to pursue grad school. But at that point, I had so much debt from six years of undergrad, um, maybe not making the best financial choices and the type of schools that I went to. Um, so I had a lot of debt and I was really stressed about it. So even though I had people encouraging me to go to grad school, I just I couldn't. I couldn't get my head around it. And I also couldn't get around my head around the idea that um, it wasn't something I was necessarily going to have to bankroll myself. Um, for me, that was that was a new concept. And I really didn't understand it until, honestly, just a few years before I went back to school. Um, so I thought all I could think about was the cost and how far in debt I was and how badly I needed to dig myself out. So I left school. Uh, with my degree. Um, and I started working, um, started off first for the Forest Service. And I spent a few years there doing um, timber cruising, which was not in line with my degree at all. But it was the work I could find at the time. Um, my partner had sort of supported me while I was going through my uh, finishing up school. And so then when we were done, I just said, hey, where, where do you want to go? I'll follow you this time. So he got a job in an area and I just kind of scrounged till I could find something that worked for me. So it was timber cruising for a few years till I was definitely really, really bored of painting trees. Um, and uh, I had been looking, I had heard about this consulting firm down in Carson City, um, not too, about 45 minutes away from where we were living. I had heard they had a good reputation. And so I essentially just hounded them until they hired me. I would go down every month and I'd drop my resume off again, even though they already had it. And I'd say, hi, soil scientists want to work for you. Hire me. Um, and they would say every time, I don't, we don't have any positions right now, but we'll keep your resume. And so I just kept doing that until I finally got a call and they just said, well, we have some work. I mean, might not be exactly what you're looking for, but we could fit you in. Um, and, and it took off from there. So I, I worked for that, uh, consulting firm. They were, they were great, great people. Uh, very kind. I learned a ton. Um, I got a lot of experience, uh, doing, um, you know, field work, collecting rangeland data, soils data, biological data, various types, working on different projects and really sharpening my analysis skills, like my written analysis skills and my uh, like geospatial skills, which I were non-existent before that point, really. 
Um, so I learned a ton, but by about the third year of working for that consulting firm, um, I realized that the work I really wanted to do was going to need a graduate degree. <laughs> um, so I, I started to realize that, ah, I need, I need, I need more skills that I can't get through just working in order to pursue the type of work that I want. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, it made it complicated, but around that same time, I had my first, my first child. And so at that point, I had a, I had a baby, <laughs> full-time job, and this desire to do more, but knowing that now is not the time to go back to grad school. I know there are people that do it for me. I was in survival mode. So I stayed in consulting. Um, but then I thought, well, what else can I do that doesn't require me to go back to grad school? So at that point, I went for my professional, um, certified professional soil scientist um, designation, which is, it's sort of similar to um, an engineering license where you, you have a apprenticeship level. Um, and then after five years of experience in the field and another very rigorous test, you can be certified. So I started that. It took me a while. But in that process, I realized that I wasn't getting enough soils work through the consulting firm I was with in order to complete my certified professional soil scientist. Um, I wanted that. Um, but I was doing so much rangeland and GIS work that although I was getting some soils work with the consulting firm, I wasn't getting the, what I needed in order to meet my five-year in the field requirement to get my license. So then I went to work for the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is another government organization, because they were hiring a soil scientist. Um, and so I got a two-year position with them. It was just term. Um, but I got to work with one of the soil scientists in our region who had just finished a huge mapping effort for the area and was a great soil taxonomist, um, a really creative person. And um, so just spending that time working underneath uh, a soil scientist and being really focused on soils in general was what I needed to finish my certification and get licensed there. Um, so that was that job. So my first round in consulting, I loved the people. I worked for an enormous, uh, really great organization. Um, but it wasn't the work I wanted. Um, and then I worked in the NRCS and it was also great people. <laughs> I learned a ton. Also wasn't quite what I wanted. It just didn't fit right. Um, and then when that term position ended, I had to sort of choose between taking a permanent position with them, which would require me to move. I think the place they offered me was Blythe, uh, which if you if you know California at all, it's it's a very dry desert uh, area. Um, lots of lots of irrigation and agriculture, but it's pretty bleak. Uh, so I wasn't ready to leave Tahoe and go live in Blythe. Um, 
So I stayed. And when I stayed, I was looking, I went back to what I knew how to do, which was consulting. So um, I ended up with another consulting firm, even though at this point, again, like me and my partner, we we're sitting down trying to figure it out. Like I knew I really wanted to go back to grad school, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to make it work. Again, at this point, I had two small kids and uh, just trying to keep my head above water. Um, it was very expensive where we were living. It was, it was tough. And we just weren't at a place where, where I could take the time I needed for myself to be able to pursue a degree. So back to consulting. Um, another, I was lucky. I think I've, I've been very lucky in my career so far that both of the consulting firms that I worked for were really, really ethical, really, um, really great groups to work for. I was never pushed to um, come up with data <laughs> or come up with answers that fit the client's need. It was always very much do your best, do your best work, uh, do your best analysis, and it is what it is. Um, so I feel really fortunate that there's been some, you know, sometimes you hear, you hear stories from other situations and I'm really grateful for the people that I worked with. But again, um, it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted. It was what met the need at the time. Worked with great people, learned a lot. Um, my boss, uh, at my second consulting firm figured out pretty early on that, I was hungry for hard questions and I would solve anything that she would throw at me. So I got a lot of those whenever there was a complicated project that was often where they'd say, hey, this one, we're not sure how to, we're not sure how to approach this one. Do you want to take a stab at it? And um, having that sort of freedom really allowed me to push myself and grow. And I learned a, a lot from that work environment as well. I became a lot better writer. I became a good project manager. Um, I continued to develop my field and my technical skills. A lot of good came out of it. I definitely learned a ton. Um, but but I was uh, it wasn't meeting that need that I had in my in my brain, in my um, in myself for pursuing the questions that I'm interested in, for my engaging my curiosity. It's a lot of um, just kind of plug and play work. So, um, yeah, I got to a point in my second consulting gig where um, I just, I had done it for about nine years by that point. My kids were old enough. They didn't need me as intensely. And I desperately needed to do something different uh, for my brain, a chance to just pursue something that I was passionate about. Um, and so I, we decided like me and my partner sat down again and we had, well, we've got some money and savings. We've got, you know, it's, you've been doing this for a really long time. Let's just see if we can make it work. And so I started looking at grad schools at that point. I would say like the good and the bad, um, there were definitely good things about working in government service. Um, you know, I felt very taken care of a lot of the time. Um, I had good opportunities to travel to different locations and work with different people. But then again, I think the thing that you always hear about that is the bureaucracy is hard to deal with. And like, like anyone will tell you, yeah, that's, that's absolutely the case. Um, but there's pros and cons, I think, with everything. 
Um, and with consulting, I, I loved having a new project every, every couple months, something new would come onto my plate, something would move off and something new would come in. So the variety of the work and, um, the people I got to work with that I got to work all over the Western States, um, that was really great. I learned a ton, uh, with consulting, the trouble there, of course, is the, uh, fast pace and the late nights and the evenings and really, um, having to work really hard to meet deadlines um, that aren't necessarily being met on the other end. You know, when you're, um, we're always very committed to meeting the targets that we had, but sometimes it didn't necessarily need to, the client wasn't necessarily doing the same. So that was hard, uh, but good. So hard and good, I think, uh, across all, all these different um, groups that I've worked with. Um, so anyway, when I started, when I started thinking about grad school seriously again, I was researching several different programs, trying to find, um, trying to try, I guess, figure out what I wanted. I had been working in soils for a long time, but especially in the Tahoe area and, um, California, there's a lot of focus on sediment movement, sediment transfer and how that affects water quality, the effects of nutrient movement in sediments and how that affects water quality. And then also um, just protecting water resources from a climate change and drought perspective. So my work had gradually shifted from soils to hydrology in my consulting environment. I was learning more and more. I was working with hydrologists and modelers and uh, working on groundwater work and, uh, you know, surface water protection and things like that. And uh, it just kind of took the place of my focus in soils and, um, and I really started to think more about how the two, maybe how the two work together um, rather than separating them, but how are soils and our water resources connected. And um, especially one of the questions that was really taking up space in my brain at that point was wondering about the impacts of groundwater recharge, managed aquifer recharge, which is something that we're doing in California and other Western states where when you have extra surface water, you can inject that or infiltrate that into shallow groundwater reserves so that it can be used later when you when you run out of surface water. It's a, an adaptation to take advantage of those resources so that um, municipalities and cities and uh, water users can just plan better. Um, and it's especially important as we think about climate change with um, the lack of snow or losing part of the snowpack, which is a huge water storage reservoir for the West. So as we're thinking about losing that resource, we have to think about how, what are we going to replace it with and where are we going to be able to store that water? So managed aquifer recharge or artificial recharge was one of those things I was really thinking a lot about. And at the same time, we started to talk about microplastics and other anthropogenic um, contaminants that might move from our human affected environment out into our natural resources. And so we're stuck in this situation where we know we need to 
make good use of our surface waters and or even recycled water um, and try to be as efficient as possible, but also recognizing that there could be pollutants or contaminants that are getting into that. And if we're injecting that or infiltrating that into our groundwater, um, we could be cross-contaminating. So I was thinking about that question a lot, thinking about water resources and management. And then I saw um, that Dr. Monica Arienzo, University of Nevada, Reno, and Desert Research Institute, which in my consulting time, I was uh, just a giant fangirl for Desert Research Institute out of Reno, um, always watching the work they're doing and um, seeing really neat projects coming out and just sort of wishing I could be there. Um, so I saw I saw this PhD position fly. It was right up my alley. I had been applying for a couple others in the hydrology related field, but um, you know, in Davis or in Montana and different schools. And then I saw this one and the date had just passed uh, for the closure of the position. And I emailed, I was like, I saw this just passed, but would you consider my application anyway? Um, and they were gracious enough to allow me to apply and I got in. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very exciting. It was um, a thing I had been waiting for for so long um, and a huge change a huge change for me, especially going back to school as a 40-year-old mom of teenagers, um, coming into a cohort of mostly 20-somethings who are still very fresh from all of their, um, all of their education and everything. I, I mean, for me, the last time I was in school was literally 20 years ago. Um, well, 23 years now. <laughs> so, um, so it's been a while. I definitely felt rusty. It was it was a big uh, adjustment for me, for my brain, just trying to get back into that headspace of homework and deadlines and classwork and managing that while also learning to conduct really rigorous research, um, you know, in a, a very different environment from the way that I'd been collecting fieldwork before. Uh, so, yeah, lots of changes, lots of lots of adjustment there. So I guess the million dollar question then, and then I want to obviously hear more about your research now, is long term, are you considering going back to consulting post PhD? Oh, I get asked that by my friends and consulting all the time. Um, I think it, the answer is it depends. Really what drives me is that I want to be able to ask hard questions and do meaningful research. Um, and if a consulting position was more along the lines of, you know, based on the work you've already done, bring your expertise and answer questions, but really not direct research, I don't think it's something I would be interested in. I want to, I mean, all things are subject to change, right? So at this point, at this point in my career, I'm loving being able to do research. I mean, even though for me, it's long hours at a microscope or in the lab or coding or working with my data, I love it. I love the ability to just immerse myself in these questions and really dig into it. I think it's one of those things I think where, because I wanted it for so long uh, and I was sort of 
dreaming of it from a distance. Um, I'm just almost giddy sometimes when I'm able to just just dig into this, dig into the questions, dig into my research, um, feel like I have time and space to really um, pursue the questions thoroughly. I think that's one of the difference when, and I know this isn't real, this isn't like um, uh, how all research will go. <laughs> um, but for right now in this PhD period of my life, um, I have the luxury of having time and one focus and that's, it's lovely. So um, from right now, it's hard for me to think about not being in a research focused position. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Time will only tell, right? Yeah. Um, so thank you for that uh, pretty thorough review, not only of your history, but what drives you, some of the good and the bad. I think our listeners are really inclined to understanding you know, what is, let's, let's real, do the real talk, um, about, yeah. you know, what, um, what you've experienced throughout your life. Um, and I know I, I appreciate it and I can, um, emphasize, uh, with much of it. Um, so let's actually do a little bit of a deep dive then on your, your current research, since you obviously love doing it and what you're currently doing. Um, let's actually talk. You gave a big overview of, of what you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing. Um, but let's actually talk about some of your current um, specific research, some of your hypotheses, what are the results yeah. that you're generating? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I've got two big areas where I'm working on and they're kind of interrelated. Um, but the first area that I'm working on is so fate and transport of microplastic and synthetic particles in, um, in the Mekong river in Cambodia. Um, so you could generalize that by just saying in freshwater systems, um, but rivers are distinct from lakes and um, all freshwater is a little different from the ocean system. So there is some, there is some classification going on there. The Mekong itself is especially interesting because it's um, one of the largest rivers in the world and it's one of the most biodiverse rivers. And it's also in a really, rapidly changing um, human environment. Um, Cambodia went through a terrible period of civil war and um, they have been since the seventies really building their economy. So they have been, um, they've been building their economy really rapidly. There's been a lot of urban growth and um, change in the country, agricultural change. Um, industrial change, but um, there some of the basic services and um, like support side of the economy has been lacking. So one of the issues when we come when we talk about plastic pollution is the connection between um, large plastics and the microplastics, the really small ones. So um, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, but the smaller plastics, the microplastics that I'm studying, generally the width of like uh, one millimeter down to like the size of a bacteria or so, um, they're for the most part formed from uh, degeneration of larger plastics. So as your larger trash breaks down in the environment or your textiles shed fibers, um, 
tires wearing down on the roads, all of that creates plastic that gets released into the environment. So it's all like these macroplastics breaking down into these smaller fragments and then becoming difficult to manage because we can't see them, we can't filter them, we can't get them out um, without having, uh, well, at scale, I guess, the right, the right, uh, the right way to say that is we can't filter them out at scale that's meaningful. So in Cambodia, waste management is one of those industries that has really um, not grown at the same speed as the economy. So the folks that live there are, are um, an industrializing nation. Um, they are consuming more. There's a lot more plastic being used in the country, but there's not any, or there's not a sufficient um, waste management uh, infrastructure there. So a lot of waste gets put into the rivers, uh, much higher than in a lot of um, developed countries. And this is common across all Southeast Asia, all these rapidly developing areas. Um, it's not it's not just Cambodia specifically. It's just where my project happens to be. For one other variable with the Mekong River especially is um, the monsoon and the seasonality of the uh, rivers flows. So you've got a, a very distinct dry season and a wet season. And in the wet season, when the river floods, um, there's a lot of the developed areas on the periphery of the river that are inundated or underwater. So you get a lot of material that could move in from those floodplain areas into the river itself. A lot of the waste that's piled up on the shores can get brought into the river. A lot of material that is sunk to the bottom of the river can be resuspended and carried. So I'm my first question that I'm working on answering is how do the microplastic uh, profile of these locations change uh, relative to the seasonality of the river? So how does it change in the dry season versus the wet season? And we're looking at the suspended particles, so the ones that are right on the surface. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see whether or not we have um, more or less of suspended microplastics in the river um, during the wet and dry season. And then also whether or not the type of plastic that we have floating in there is changing based on the season. And um, because a lot of our higher density materials, um, they sink down to the bottom, but during the high flows, they can get um, resuspended and brought up to the surface. So that's important for understanding because the different plastic materials have different effects. You kind of think about plastic in general as, you know, one thing, but the, in actuality, there's a huge chemical difference between, between like polyethylene and PVC, um, or or even um, you know silicon and PVC. Some of them are relatively inert in the environment, and they're not. They don't have a lot of additives, or they don't have um, compounds in them that can leach out. And some of them are like PVC, for example, is um, almost in some in some cases, it can be more than a third of the actual material is just additives. Things, chemicals added to it to make it flexible, to make it um, last longer in UV light, 
um, just to, to meet the manufacturer's specifications. So the problem is that um, those compounds can act differently in the environment once they uh, break free from the plastic itself, from those polymers, and they get pulled into the environment, they can have different ecological effects. So understanding which plastics are available at which times um, is important for understanding the potential impacts on the, the people and the um, aquatic life that's in that system. So thank you for that. Um, I guess my, my next question would be is since your research is in Cambodia, but you're in Reno, how do you actually facilitate your research? So I've already collected all of my samples. Um, I was very lucky. So um, at the University of Nevada, Reno, there's a program here by two, uh, two professors that uh, started working on the Mekong in like the early 2000s. So they've been there for more than 20 years working with the local populations and local scientists building uh, an extension branch in the capital city of Phnom Penh, working with um, graduate students and postdocs and professors in Cambodia, uh, Cambodian nationals, um, to look at fisheries and sustainability and a bunch of um, a bunch of important uh, aquatic parameters on the Mekong itself. And, and like I said before, the Mekong's one of the most biodiverse rivers in the world. So it's it's really been important to study it, especially as industrialization happens and more dams get added to the river. Um, the part of the river we were able to study is actually the longest dam-free section in the Mekong. It's about 575 kilometers from the Lao border to the Vietnam border in Cambodia. So I, um, this was one of those things, uh, part of my, this kind of serendipity of um, falling into this project through my PhD work. Um, I was just getting started and the opportunity came up. Um, Wonders of the Mekong, this group that we're working with, they said, hey, we have this two week long expedition down the length of the Mekong to collect a bunch of biological samples and parameters for um, algae and uh, fish populations. Would you like to join? And you could look at microplastics. <laughs> so the answer, of course, was yes, of course, I would join. Um, so we jumped in, uh, worked with my whole lab group sort of tag team this because it was multiple trips, uh, long trips, and then also um, uh, exploratory trip to start with to make sure that we knew how and what we were going to be collecting. So it was a lot of trips to Cambodia. Um, so in uh, last year and the winter before was when we collected all of our Cambodia samples. So I have them all, now they're all in the lab and I've been working through processing them. And it was a great experience. I mean, especially as a um, first year PhD student to be able to go to Cambodia, uh, work with a bunch of really great scientists and collect um, just really exciting data in a place I'd never thought I'd be. So, um, so yeah, so I've already collected my samples. Now I'm in the um, lab microscope and data crunching phase of, of my work. Um, so I think I talked about, I talked about the 
uh, seasonality of the microplastics and why we're looking at that. The other component that we're looking at with that project is how different development patterns affect the and waste management um, patterns affect the microplastic concentration. And so there's been a lot of work in um, Europe and the northern latitudes looking at the same sort of thing. Um, but there's a lot of assumptions that go into these global models um, when they're looking at how waste is transported from land out to the oceans and all of that. Uh, and sort of those assumptions, because the vast majority of our research has happened in the northern part of the globe. And so we sort of have this these data black holes uh, where there's no field data out there to really validate these models and uh, confirm or make corrections to um, these assumptions. So the second part of my work is looking at building that sort of a data set for Cambodia to say, okay, with these um, like population densities that we have, with the type of development and agriculture that's in these watersheds, um, and with the waste management practices, like in some areas, there's no waste management available at all. And everyone is, um, it's, you know, it's up to the individual person to manage their, um, their waste. Um, if we can understand how those patterns affect or don't affect the microplastic concentration in the river and the link to these larger plastics, the macroplastics, then that can really help um, it can really help inform the models that are looking at uh, how how plastic trash moves around the world. And it can also um, help as we're thinking about mitigation and um, planning tools and infrastructure development that can really help protect our water systems. So you've talked a little bit about the big picture. You've talked yeah. about how you've collected the samples. And I believe what you are measuring is essentially the concentration of the microplastics. And then I would assume also the identification of the microplastics from the additives that are in the macroplastics. So then my question to you is sort of what an analysis techniques are you using with respect to instrumentation um, or I mean, anything beyond that now that you have the samples, what are you doing with yeah. them, right? So the first thing we need to do in the lab is, well, I'll say also, I'm, I'm not looking at additives right now, uh, but I'll get into that. Um, so the first thing that we do when we get our samples back, so we collect on filters, we use stainless steel filters, sort of a stacked filter method because we can't transport water um, internationally. Um, so, uh, so, and the other thing using this, um, we call it a high volume sampling method rather than doing a grab sample where you just, um, you take a container and you literally just scoop up water from a site that you're curious and then you take it back to study. That's a problematic method for microplastics because in most water bodies, the concentrations of microplastics are pretty low, like less than one to maybe five particles per liter. It's pretty low in, in the US in a lot of areas and even in the ocean, you know, but, um, so we use this, this high volume sampling method because it allows us to filter like 60 liters or up to 100 liters through these filters. And then knowing how much we pumped through 
and looking at the total number of counts, we can get particles per liter, um, which is usually the unit that we're that we're reporting in. But once we get our filters back to the lab, we have to remove all the organic material that could be on them. So we do like oxidation or digestion in the lab to get rid of those. Um, try to break down as much of the organics as we can without harming the plastics because we don't want to change the plastics or make them degrade further. Um, and then we also need to remove the sediments that are accumulated on those filters as well. So especially in um, in like a high sediment load river like the Mekong, um, when you're, our smallest filter is about 20 microns and those fine sediments that just stay suspended in the river, they just get trapped on that. So you end up with this mud cake on your small filter that's that you need to try to get rid of somehow. You need to try to separate your synthetic particles from those natural particles. So we do a density separation where we, um, we use uh, like different salts with known densities uh, in columns. And then um, we can separate, um, you know, the plastics that we want. If we fine tune our density of our salt solution, then we can get, theoretically, <laughs> we can get our plastics to float and the sediments to sink out and then collect the plastics from that and then move on with our analysis. I say theoretically because sometimes those particles are bound to the sediments. Um, they aggregate in in the, in the, um, the river itself. They'll just bind together or they'll start developing um, biological crusts on the outside of them and biofilms. And then they get heavy and they sink and they act like a sediment particle. So that's one of the challenges really, especially with those very small particles is trying to separate them from natural materials. So knowing that we can't do it entirely, we use um, a Fourier transformed infrared spectroscopy uh, or FTIR to identify the material once, we, once we've processed in the lab. Um, that instrument itself really uses infrared light and it shoots infrared light at a designated spot. Like we can zoom in really close within a couple micrometers. I think the limits of the instrument is about 20 micrometers is what we can realistically identify. So we can zoom in on our particles and map out where the ones we're interested in. And then we tell the instrument to shoot infrared light at them. And then it measures based on the vibration of the light as it comes off of those particles. Um, it uses that signal to make sort of a fingerprint or a spectra for those material types. And we can compare the spectra of what we are looking at under the microscope against these libraries of known materials. Um, and we can identify particles like that. So for the most part, that's successful. We um, have been really lucky to work with um, some brilliant folks behind an open source um, microplastic identification spectral library called OpenSpecky. So shout out to OpenSpecky. Um, they uh, have been working really hard to build um, a library of particles that's accessible to everyone. Um, they're constantly updating it. And that resource has been huge. It's over 20,000 different plastic spectra and natural material spectra that are included in that. Um, so that's a huge resource. And um, that's what we do. So we, we clean up our samples in the lab, our filters in the lab. 
we isolate those microplastics and then we are those synthetic particles or whatever else we can't get off the filter. Then we take it down to the microscope and we, um, if there's less than 500 particles on a filter, we'll collect all of them. If there's more than 500, we subset. So we'll take about 20% if it's more than 500 particles, about 20% of the total particles. And we identify those and then we extrapolate um, for the rest of the filter. And that's for characterization in addition to concentration quantification. Yeah. Well, so we'll use that to come up with our concentration because before that, we don't know for sure what those particles are. They're so small. And in the Mekong, they're all brown. Like you can't look at them and say, ah, that's a plastic. Um, it all looks the same. Visually, it's really difficult to distinguish uh, colors, especially. Sometimes we'll have material that have a color that pops out and it's bright. But in my examples, that's usually an indication that it hasn't been in the river for a very long time, and it may be contamination as well. So we always collect blanks um, uh, when we're in the field and then also in our lab processes. And a blank is where you, you, um, you do the same process that you would do for your, um, for your sample, but you don't actually have a sample. So for a lab blank, I would be pumping ultra pure water through um, my same setup that I use in the field, handling it exactly the same, and then ultimately taking that filter and taking it back down to the FTR and just seeing, did I cause any contamination? Is there anything on there that I need to account for to make sure that my, um, my numbers are realistic or not contaminated? So yeah, the FTIR is a huge important component of our analysis because especially with mine, without it, we really couldn't tell what's plastic and what's natural. No, that's that's really fascinating. Um, I think, um, you know, what keeps you up at night with your research? What What is kind of one of the biggest challenges that you face right now? Yeah. Um, that keeps me up at night. I think... And you probably would hear this from a lot of people working on plastic pollution is the scale of the problem and the feeling that um, it's going to be a long time before we hit our peak pollution level. So, as I said before, the microplastics, for the most part, are coming from the degradation of these larger materials that are out there in the environment. And those materials, like, <laughs> if you think about the life, the lifespan of a plastic, um, like a, a plastic bottle, um, we can estimate that would, can last for up to 400 years out in the environment. Um, you know, 600 for fishing line. Some things are shorter, have a smaller time, but often that just means the time until we can't see them anymore, which doesn't mean that those particles are completely um completely uh broken down it's the polymers themselves that are still intact those chains that are are the plastic and they have the same characteristics of the plastic and they act in the environment the same way they're just smaller and we can't see them and we can't manage them so right now globally the level of plastics that we recycle is about under nine percent so that means every, <laughs> practically, every plastic 
plate you've ever used, every plastic water bottle, every plastic bag. It's all out there still. It's in dumps if we're lucky, uh, or it's mismanaged and it's leaked into the environment. And now it's going to be out there breaking down and making more microplastics. And the reason that's scary is because once they get that small, we don't have a good system yet for removing them from the environment. And we're only just now beginning to understand the potential effects of those particles. Um, and so I don't work in ecotoxicology, but there are lots of folks very frantically studying this issue to try to understand what are the effects of these man-made materials on the environment, especially once they accumulate and start reaching high concentrations. So a lot of the studies right now have shown that if there are high enough concentrations of these plastics, it can have um, adverse consequences on uh, aquatic species like um, plankton, um, uh, photosynthetic algae, mussels, things like that. We're seeing the, the effect of plastics on their nervous system and their reproductive system at high concentrations. So one of the criticisms of those research is research will be, uh, well, we're not at those concentrations right now, but the answer to that is we might be, we might be soon. Um, Cause right now we're just generating more and more plastic year over year and we're not managing it well. And we don't know how to get it out of the environment. So I'm collecting all this data, trying very hard to um, add meaningful knowledge to our base so that we can make good decisions, but also feeling like um, the clock is ticking. And every year we're just generating more and more and more plastic. Uh, year over year, we're increasing the rate of production. And especially as as the world shifts from uh, oil in cars, um, most plastics are, made, are a byproduct of oil and gas refining. So as we shift away from um, using fossil fuels and for transportation and energy, um, the industry is pushing hard to replace that use with, with plastics, plastic production. And it's hard to argue for a lot of folks who are in the, um, you know, the retail end of things because it's so much cheaper than everything else. Um, it's it's an incredible plastics are an incredible material. Um, they're lightweight, they're durable, they're uh, versatile. You can do just about anything with them, and and they're also really really cheap. Um, but they don't go away and we don't manage them and we need to consider the consequences uh, once it's out there in the environment. So not quite related to what about my data is keeping me up at night, but related to the field that I'm working in. Um, that's one of the things that, that I think about a lot, just, um, hoping that the, material, the data that we're collecting will be used by policymakers and 
people who can really make a difference in uh, changing our business as usual to something that is more sustainable and that we can protect um we can, can protect the species out there that happen to be sharing this space this this period of time with us in our evolutionary history um, well said well said um last question and i ask all of my guests this question um before we um exit is um you know if you were to tell yourself 10 years ago 20 years ago when you were a kid um or young adults in your case um you know and you would impart some wisdom to yourself um hindsight being 2020 what would you tell yourself oh i don't know i i don't know that i would change anything I had a bumpy process getting to where I'm at. Um, definitely didn't take the usual path. Um, but I learned so much on the way and I developed so much as a person. It's hard to um, hard to say if there's anything I would tell myself to change or avoid. Um, but I would definitely say to stay curious, to keep digging. Um, to don't settle if you're not if you're not doing the thing that you love, you can change. You can keep hunting and nothing is ever decided. So I think those are the probably the words of encouragement that I would give my younger self is like nothing is forever. You can always change, you can always grow. There's no reason to stay stuck. And if you're feeling stuck, make a change. And everyone, you heard it directly from our soil expert. Don't settle. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I like it. Terrible. Um, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for the discussion today. Um, your path may so have not been non-traditional, non but you know what? I think it's it's fascinating all the, the, the more. And um, I think there are a lot of different things and not everyone has to do the same thing. And you learn through all of your different experiences, which you obviously yes. spoke a lot about. So I thank you for being a guest and I thank our listeners for obviously tuning in and always ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Thanks everyone.